The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. The scripture reading from today is Esther chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. So, I'm kind of a geek. I fought that truth through most of my life, particularly middle school and high school. I wanted, I, I knew, it's kind of one of those situations where I knew who I was, but I wanted to be somebody different. Any, anybody, you guys are not going to be old enough to remember this, anybody old enough to remember the Dukes of Hazard? Okay, so more than I anticipated. So I was a big Dukes of Hazard fan when I was a kid, and I wanted to be Bo Duke right? He's the blonde-haired, fun-loving guy that gets all the girls. Like, that's who I pictured myself being. He sings and, you know, but I knew I'm Luke Duke. Like, I'm the boring guy who's, like, responsible one. Like, I was the geek in middle school and high school. I, I, I knew that, but I fought that I'm a lot more comfortable with it now, so I'm going to throw out geeky references for you guys. You're just going to have to play along because I'm the one that's preaching. And so in high school, I fell in love with these set of books called uh, The Lord of the Rings Trilogy, and then before that, The Hobbit. Anybody fans of Lord of the Rings? Okay, thank you, us geeks. We can, you know, geeks have won now, so we can come out of the closet and be open but uh, I loved, I discovered those in, in high school and I loved them. Anybody, who's read those books? Maybe not just a fan, but read the books. Who's seen the movies? You can raise your hand, they're great movies, awesome. Okay, so I, I'm, I feel like I'm okay with this. So uh, I am fascinated, I've always been fascinated. I reread the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy probably every two to three years. I'll break them back out and read them again uh, because I'm a geek. And uh, I'm fascinated with this group of people in this made-up world called the hobbits. They're a really interesting group of people because they live in this place called the Shire, and it's a happy-go-lucky place. They don't really want to know what goes on the outside world. They're mostly concerned about kind of neighborhood gossip and what's for breakfast or second breakfast. This tells you why I love the hobbits so much, because they have two breakfasts, and they're eating all the time. I'm like, yes, that's great. And, and, and they're, they're mostly concerned with what's for, what's for second breakfast, what's for lunch, what's going on, but they don't really want to know what's out, going on in the outside world. They, they don't want anything to do with adventure. And anybody who wants to do with anything having to do with adventure, you're kind of like an outcast in Hobbit world. There's this guy named Bilbo Baggins, though. 
And he's kind of fascinated with the idea of adventure, at least in the, the Hobbit world, he's really fascinated with this idea. And he really dreams of something more, of a greater sense of adventure, a greater sense of purpose, a greater sense of calling, if you will, in his life. And he's fascinated with it up until the point that it actually comes and literally knocks on his door. When the wizard Gandalf comes and knocks on the door and then uh, all these unexpected guests show up for dinner and he's forced to entertain them and he hears about a dragon and a great adventure and all of a sudden he's not sure he wants anything to do with this great adventure that lies before him. Even though the, he's going to end up being a central character in what's getting ready to happen, and the hobbits are going to be central characters in the saving of Middle Earth. I'm really going deep into the, into the geekiness now. We're going full, full bore. The, 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 the hobbits are going to be the center of the saving of Middle Earth. Whenever adventure comes and knocks on the door, though they're going to end up rising to the occasion, they really don't want anything to do with it. And you and I, we long for a sense of adventure. We long for a sense of purpose. We long for a sense of calling. It's why we watch the movies that we watch and read the books that we do and get excited about the TV shows that we get excited about. Do we even call them TV shows anymore? Are they just Netflix shows now? I don't know. But it, that's why we get so excited about those things because we long for a sense of adventure and a sense of calling. But here's the truth, is that when, when adventure comes and actually knocks on our door, it doesn't look like we expect it to look, and it's really scary, and we're not sure if we want to even buy into this deal. And that's where Esther has found herself in this story. Esther, who was just a common Jewish as far as we know, some sort of a, a peasant in the most powerful kingdom on the face of the earth in the Persian Empire, happens to be beautiful. And because she's hot and the king gets rid of his old queen and he puts out this great kingdom-wide beauty pageant to find who the next hot wife of the king is gonna be and she gets chosen for this beauty pageant and then she spends a year getting beautified, getting ready and she goes in and spends one night with the king and the king chooses her to be his queen. Like all of a sudden she finds herself the queen of Persia which is a pretty amazing thing to be. And so she, I think she feels that her sense of adventure, her sense of calling, her sense of purpose is past. She's lived her great adventure. Now she's queen of Persia, of the Persian Empire. But she's a Jew. And her cousin Mordecai, who raised her as her father, he does something that causes a stir. There's this guy named Haman, and he's the second command of the whole entire Persian Empire. That, by the way, that's not like the vice president who has no power. This is an incredibly powerful and incredibly rich man in the Persian Empire. He is second to the king what he says goes. And the king seems to trust him with a lot of stuff as we're getting ready to see in the seconds we've already seen if you've been following along. Haman's coming by, and as Haman comes by, everybody bows to him, except Mordecai says, I only, we think, he doesn't really tell us why, but we think Mordecai says, I only bow to God alone. And so when Haman comes by, Mordecai does not bow, and that gets Haman's goat. He cannot stand that. And so he finds out about Mordecai, and he finds out that he's a Jew. Now, there's an interesting kind of we don't have time to go into it, but an interesting touch point here is that Haman was an Agagite or an Agagite or depending on however you want to say it, uh, as you pronounce it with authority as you're reading through it. And he, they have been 
enemies of the Jews for generation after generation after generation. So whenever he hears that Mordecai is a Jew, he sees that this is his chance to get back, not only at Mordecai, but get back at all the Jews together. And he goes to the king, he says, there's a group of Jews, there's a group of people, you don't know who they are, king, they're not so important to you, they don't really do anything for you, I say we should get rid of them. And the king, who is giving him a lot of authority, he's kind of checked out, not really paying attention to what's going on. He says, yeah, that sounds good. Do whatever you want to do. And so Haman passes a law in the name of the king and says that all, excuse me, all the Jews on the 13th day of the 12th month are going to be annihilated. They're going to be killed. Wherever they are in the kingdom, everybody has the right to go and kill the Jews and take what they own as your own, the plunder. Well, the king has no idea that his queen is a Jew. And we think that Esther probably has no idea this is going on herself. Thank you. Jonathan covered last week the section where uh, Esther hears about from Mordecai that the Jews are about to be annihilated. And here's where we end, we begin the story. Now here's the deal. Mordecai comes to Esther and he tells her that you've got to stand up for the Jews. And Esther sends a message back to Mordecai, says, you don't understand. I might be the queen, but I can't just go into the king anytime. If anybody goes into the king's presence unbidden, and he sees you and doesn't like seeing you that morning, then you can be killed immediately on the spot. So if I'm going to go into the king, I'm going at the risk of death. Like, I might be the queen, but I don't really have any say in him. I haven't even seen him for a month. He hasn't come and visited me. As Jonathan covered last week, Mordecai says, if you don't do this, not only will the Jews be annihilated, but don't pretend that you being the queen, that you're gonna skip out on the punishment yourself. You will fall underneath it as well. And plus, God will deliver his people. These are God's chosen people that he promised to bless the earth through and who the savior of the earth, Jesus Christ, is gonna come through. So it's a big deal that these people are preserved. And he says, so don't think, salvation will come, don't, but you will be annihilated, but God will raise up salvation from somewhere else. So now Esther is facing a huge risk. And now if you've read the book or you've noticed that this book is named after her, then you probably get the idea that she's gonna be a heroine and things are gonna work out okay in the end. But if you're Esther in this situation, if you're Bilbo when these Uh, unexpected visitors come in the middle of the night and you have to feed them and all of a sudden you're hearing about dragons and risk to your life. If All of a sudden, it doesn't seem like a very simple decision. And the assurance of victory is not clear. And that's the situation that Esther is in right now. Everything is hanging in the balance. But if you're living in the middle of it at that moment, there's a lot of pressure And everything inside you wants to back down. And I'm sure everything inside Esther is wanting to back down right right now. So let's finish out this story and see what we can learn from it. First of all, we're gonna see Esther make a move. We're gonna see Esther makes a move. It's interesting that to me that in in this book that there's no like perfect character. Every character in the book of Esther is flawed. Depending on how you look at it, there's either four or five major characters in the book, the fifth being perhaps Queen Vashti. 
But first of all, you have the king. He's the king of Persia, and he seems to be impetuous. I mean, somebody comes to him, and we're going to see a couple of times, somebody comes to him and says, hey, king, you should do this. And he says, yeah, do whatever. I don't, I don't really care. Like, you make the decision. When Haman comes to him and says, let's kill all these, this whole race of people that are part of your kingdom that aren't making, excuse me, that aren't making any money for you, king. He says, yeah, that sounds fine. Do whatever you think fit. I don't even want to read the law. Here's my, here's my ring. Just enact it. Make it happen. He's an impetuous king. He's detached and he's self-absorbed. He's so consumed with his own life. He's not caring about the lives of the people in his kingdom. And yet he's going to make a decision that's going to Help save the day. You have Haman, who we know he's, he's the bad guy. He's arrogant, he's vengeful, and he is spiteful in this story. Not only that, you have the two like heroes, the hero and the heroine. You have Mordecai, who's like basically uh, Esther's, she's, he's Esther's cousin, but he's basically her dad. Uh, he's timid in raising Esther to stand up for her nationality and her religion. They're the chosen people of God, the Jews. And he said, if you will do this, if you will follow me and obey me, then all will go well with you. But if you don't, things are going to go poorly for you. And he advises Esther, don't let people know that you're a Jew. And then you have Esther, who, when she first hears the story about her people are going to be annihilated, she's the queen of the empire of Persia. And she sends a message back to Mordecai, says, I really can't do anything. She takes no moral stand, and she seemingly turns a blind eye to her brothers and sisters who are in peril of their life, peril of their life. Nobody starts off in this book looking great. And you know how you and I can be encouraged by that? Is that that's really you and I as well. I I may not know you personally, but... I know humankind enough to know that nobody is perfect, nobody is great, nobody is awesome all the time. We are flawed people, and each of us knows our flaws more than the other people around us, perhaps. And you might think, I'm not a hero, I'm not the one to stand up, I'm not the one to stand out, I'm not the one to, I feel like Esther, I know like God has a call on me to stand up and stand out in my life for him, to speak out for him, to share my faith, to talk about how even if the fact I am a Christian, to stand up for truth. But I'm not, who am I to say anything? The people around me at work, they know what uh, kind of sleazeball I can be. I, I've joined in too many bad jokes. I've, I've stolen too many pens. I've stolen too many pencils. I've parked in the boss's parking space whenever he's not there. I've done too many bad things for them to listen to me. And here's the truth, and here's an encouraging thing for each person in this room. No matter how you've messed up, no matter how you've mailed it in, no matter what you've done wrong, Mordecai and Esther royally messed things up. I mean, Esther, by the way, she's chosen to go in with a king, and she spends the night with a man who's not her husband. And yet God uses her to save an entire people. God uses Mordecai to save an entire people. God uses the king, Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus, to save the Jews. Yet he was a wicked king. God uses flawed, broken people. That's what he does. He does it in this story. He's done it over and over again. Look at his 12 disciples. They were terrible 
there's a lot of churches that wouldn't even bring one of the disciples into their membership because they deny him over and over again. They fail it over and over again, and yet God takes flawed, messed up, broken, sinful people and uses them to achieve his purposes in the world. Esther starts off poorly, and then she moves slowly. Her cousin, Mordecai, has to convince her that not to even do the right thing. He says, look, here's, he doesn't even appeal to saying, hey, this is the right thing to do to stand up for the Jews. He has to appeal to her and say, your own fate is in the balance if you don't do this. You will die. Don't, don't fall under false pretenses. You will personally die if you do not stand up for the Jews. So we don't even know at the beginning if her motivation is pure. Her motivation seemed to be like, hey, Mordecai says, I and myself will die in my father's house if I don't stand up here. Maybe I need to consider this. She starts off poorly. She moves slowly. But here's the cool thing. She comes to realize that she is called to serve God right where she is with whatever she has. She comes to realize that she's called to serve God right where she is with whatever she has. And that's what you and I, that's our story as well. You and I, we may feel like we're broken. We may feel like we bring nothing to the table. We might feel like our life doesn't amount to much. I'm, I have this dead-end job. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I hate my life. I hate my job. I don't really like where I live. I'm just in school now. I, I, I really am sending a lot. My life is a mess. Maybe one day when I get past the hump, when I get a better job, whenever I finally can get back into the, the workplace, whenever I graduate school, whenever I stop sending so much, then I can really do something for Jesus then. But that's not the way it happens. God says, right where you are, however you are, whatever is in your hand, whatever your story is, whatever your setting is, whatever you find in your hand right now, that's, what God has, that's where God has called you to serve and what God has called you to serve him with right there. You can be a part of his kingdom work exactly in the place where you are, as broken as you are, as insignificant as you may feel that you are. She comes to realize that she's called to serve right where she is, whatever she has, and she gets to join in God's great plan of redemption. She gets to join. There's a risk involved in standing up here. As it all hands, hangs in the balance here, she's getting ready to stand before the king. She's, uh, she, she goes into the king, and the king says, hey, come on in. So that's a relief. And then he says, hey, what can I give you up to half my kingdom? And she says, hey, come to dinner with me tonight and bring Haman. And he comes to dinner tonight and brings Haman, and he's pleased. And he says, what can I give you? And she says, come, let me throw another banquet for you. Come back tomorrow. Let's have a bigger banquet, and let's have a big time, and bring Haman with you again. Now, some commentators in here aren't really sure whether she's being wise or whether she's being, or she's putting off what she needs to do. Whatever is happening here, God is at work in this situation and she gets to join in the plan of redemption, no matter how it all hangs in the balance, but she gets to join in into something that was much bigger than her. It wasn't about her that's why she comes to the point where she says, if I perish, I perish, but I will go into the king and I will make this request. Because Mordecai says, maybe you've been put here for this time right now. 
And that maybe isn't a real maybe. It's a for sure. And you and I have been placed exactly where we are right now for this time. Wherever you are, however you are, whatever is in your hand, God has called you to join in his plan of redemption right there. That's the work he's been at from the beginning of the world, to call a people to himself. When we messed it up in the beginning in the garden, we continue to mess it up over and over again, and I think we can all agree that we're in a messed up world. We've not only messed things up individually, but we've messed things up royally as a culture and society across the world. But God is redeeming a people for himself. That's why he sent his son to pay the penalty that we deserve for all the things that we have done to bring us back into right standing with him. And he is remaking the world and this broken culture and this broken economy. He's coming to make it all right again. That's the work that we get to join in that he's been at work in the very beginning. Esther got to join in this work to stand up to make sure that his people were not annihilated so the Messiah could come through his people. And that's the plan that you and I get to join in exactly where you are. You're like, look, you haven't seen my job. It is terrible. You haven't seen, uh, nobody looks up to me. Nobody respects me. I have no voice. But God has called you right there. You might feel like I'm just changing diaper after diaper, putting kids down to nap, picking them back up again, feeding them food, cleaning the messes, putting them back down again. And any leftover time I have is just I'm exhausted and I fall down on the couch, I fall on the bed, totally exhausted. That's all that I can do. I'm not really doing anything. God has called you right there to leverage all that you have for the sake of his purpose to redeem mankind. You are playing a role in that exactly where you are, exactly what you're doing. But not only to just join in God's, not just, that's the ultimate thing to join in God's plan of redemption, but she comes to realize that as the story progresses, we see her grow into this role that she realizes that this position that she's put in, she can use it for the common good. Not just the good of God's people, but for the common good of all people. We see it in her life and in Mordecai. When Mordecai, I'm cheating ahead now, when Mordecai becomes second in command and replaces Haman, whenever he comes, becomes second in command, the city of Susa, the capital city, rejoices. Why? Because Haman was a wicked man and he ruled wickedly. And when Mordecai is raised to the second in command, people rejoice because they know he's gonna rule in righteousness and justice and mercy. And you and I, in whatever position that we are in, we get to work for the common good for righteousness and justice and mercy. It might be flipping burgers or working at a cashier. It might be replacing shingles on somebody's house. It might be dispensing drugs or riding briefs or searching titles or whatever the case may be, whatever it is that you are doing, you get to leverage, you get to leverage what you do for the common good so that people around you who don't even know him, have not met Jesus Christ, do not, the be- do not know the beauty that is found in the face of Jesus, get to see goodness and justice and mercy. Maybe you see even just in the way that you parent your children, in the way that you're a neighbor, in the way that you're a friend, working for the common good, for the glory of God. She starts off poorly, she moves slowly, she comes to, but then she comes to realize that she is called to serve God right where she is, and she summons courage. 
She summons courage. It takes her a while to get ramped up to it, but she finally summons enough courage to step into the bat, and and she right here in this section that we just read, she finally says, makes her request known. On the second day as they were drinking, this is seven, chapter seven, verse two, as they were drinking wine after the, after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, king, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, answered if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. We have been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Remember, it is not a foregone conclusion that the the king is gonna side with Esther. He's probably known Haman longer than he's known Esther. Haman's made him a lot of money. He's overseen his entire kingdom. He's trusted him with his signet ring. Women were less than second-class citizens at this time. And she steps out there and she makes her request known. A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. She summons her, her courage and she learns how to leverage all that she has. It's something that she learns to do. That should be an encouragement for all of us. You don't have to leave here today and say, I'm gonna leverage all that I have for the kingdom of God at my neighborhood and in my home and in my workplace. We get to learn how to leverage all that we have. What particular gifts and abilities God has given you, what motivations he's given you, what places he has put you in, you get to learn, it should be an exciting thing to us, we get to learn how to leverage all that he has given us for his kingdom and for the common good. She summons courage and then we see that she utilizes wisdom. I think that's what she's doing here. I don't I don't think she's just putting things off, but it could be. She, has the, she goes before him and he grants her an audience and he asks her what she wants. She says, have dinner with me. And then again, she says, come have a banquet with me. Join me in this feast. She utilizes wisdom. We think that probably what's happening is that she's endearing herself deeper to the king by reminding her, by reminding him of how beautiful she is, how pleasant she is to be around, and how she's really seeking for the king's good above all things, not being selfish. So whenever he finally says this third time, what do you want at the second banquet? And she makes her request known, he's more likely to listen to her. She utilizes wisdom to make this move. And then we see that she uses her natural abilities to supernatural ends. What ability is Esther bringing into this confrontation with the king? She's bringing her beauty, her nice personality, which before we told she, we're told she has a great personality. She's bringing her beauty and a great personality before the king. And that's pretty much all that she has to bring to him. There's, she has no supernatural gifts. There's no miracles that are happening here. She just goes before him with those two things and leverages what she has. And God takes that, her natural ability to supernatural ends. He gives her favor before the king. And he channels the heart of the king 
to accomplish his ends. She takes a step. She's not sure what's going to happen. But then not only does Esther make a move, but then we see Esther gets to see God move. She gets to see God move. We've mentioned it in every sermon so far, but Esther is a unique book in the entire Bible. It's the only book that's there that God's name is not mentioned. And again, I think that should be an encouragement to you and I because I don't know about your life, but I can often go hours and days and weeks without a tangible sense of God's presence. Whenever it happens, I am overjoyed for it. And I might go through a season where I'm regularly sensing his presence and his favor upon my heart, but sometimes he seems like he's far away. And I'm not really sure where, what he's doing or even if he's working in me or around me. But God's name is not mentioned, but from, that, from our 30,000 foot point view as we look at it, we can see him working over and over again in this book. But there at the time, I doubt it was clear. Later on, hindsight is twenty twenty. You can often see what he did, but when you're in the middle of it, it's not clear what he is doing. God's name isn't mentioned, but yet he moves. There's no miracle in this book. So you may have never seen a burning bush or seen water turn to wine. God does miracles, but maybe you have never seen it or don't feel like you see it regularly. But here's the truth. God is at work even when it doesn't seem like he is at work. He is working in providence around us. There's no miracle, but there is wonder after wonder that occurs in this book. No miracle, but wonder after wonder after wonder occurs. It's a wonder that Esther has even chosen. She's a Jew. I think why Mordecai told Esther not to tell people she was a Jew is because they, they did not have a great uh, reputation in the city of Susa at the time. And yet Esther is chosen to join the harem and then to join, to then to be the queen. Mordecai happens to be by the city gate whenever two of the king's servants, two eunuchs, are discussing a plot to kill him. He happens to be there to overhear it and sends message to Esther, and the king's life is saved because of Mordecai happening to overhear the conversation. Then Esther comes before the king whenever she's risking her life to come before him in her first audience, and she finds favor with him, even though he hasn't been thinking about Esther, he hasn't been to see her for a month. And then, after they have the first feast, the king lays down to, to bed, and I don't know if there's something about Esther's cooking that gives him heartburn or what happens, but he happens to wake up in the middle of the night and he can't sleep that night. Happens to. And then he happens to call for, what could he have done? He could have done lots of things to entertain himself, but he happens to call for somebody to come read a book to him. And the book he happens to call to be read doesn't, isn't a, a, a fiction book. It happens to be a story of uh, a history of his kingdom. It doesn't happen to be a history of just any part of his 127 provinces that he is king over, but it happens to be the history of the city of Susa. And then they happen to open it to the page where it tells of the story of Mordecai overhearing happening to overhear the plot to overthrow the king. And the king happens to wonder, hey, it's the middle of the night. Have we ever honored Mordecai? And they say no. And he says, who's out in the court? And Haman happens to be out in the court. And he calls Haman in. And he says, what should we do? 
for somebody that the king wants to honor. And Haman thinks he's talking about him. And he said, well, we should throw a party and a parade for him. And he says, great, go do that for Mordecai. (laughs) Haman builds a gallows to kill Mordecai in his backyard. And it happens to be the gallows that he's gonna be killed upon himself whenever his plot is exposed before the king and queen here which is what we see happen in verse five. Everything hangs in, the ba- hangs in the balance. We saw that Queen Esther said, it's Haman, this wicked man, he's a foe and an enemy, that Haman is terrified. And then verse seven, we see the king arose, he's so angry in his wrath and the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. He's so angry, he's like, I gotta get out of here, I gotta think about this. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from the Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him from the king. And the king comes back into the palace from the garden and he sees that Haman is falling on the couch where Esther was. Now this is a big no-no because if you are, uh, any person should not become within seven paces of the queen of Persia. But Haman is so out of his mind, he's pleading for mercy from Esther and he's falling up on the couch where she is. And the king comes in and he says, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. And he says, what should we do? And we see how, what a, how loved Haman was by his coworkers. They, somebody speaks up and says, uh, hey, uh, Haman has some gallows that he was going to kill Mordecai on. What I think, uh, you know, they're there. <laughs> Hate to see it wasted. Hate to see a good gallows wasted, right? Let's put it to use. And the king says, so shall it be done. So here's the question. Esther gets to see God moving, even though his name is not mentioned, even though there's no miracle. We see from hindsight, from our view, the the wonder after wonder that occurs. But here's the question for you and I. Where do you see God at work around you? Where do you see God at work around you? And if your answer is like my answer probably is, and I'm not really sure, then here's the question is like, are we even looking? Am I even paying attention? I've asked some friends to pray for me before. It's like, look, I don't need you to pray for me that I would have courage to do the right thing, though I I do need that. That, Courage isn't the big thing that's stopping me. The biggest thing that's stopping me is my self-preoccupation that causes me not to see the needs around me and see where God is working around me. I'm running down life all concerned about my own deal, not even looking around to see what is God doing around me. And so the first question is, are we even looking? Before, before we even get to the point, are we willing to take the risk? Are we even looking at what he is doing around us? And if we pray, God, would you give me eyes to see where you are at work? I've put in my to-do list because I forget things. If I don't put it there, I put in my to-do list a couple of weeks ago where I pray a prayer every morning, God, show me where you are at work around me and help me join in your mission around me. Give me the courage to do so after I see it, but help me to see it first of all. Are, you even, are we even looking? Are we praying for him to show us? And then whenever he does, Join him in his work there. Join him in what he is doing. Make the move to step out and do what he's called you to do. Let your story and 
where you are and whatever is in your hand, your ability, your talents, leverage that for his kingdom. Join him. It might seem something that would be trivial to you or trivial to somebody else. Join him there. It might be something that you feel is too big for you or somebody around you might think is too big for you. Join him there. I'm convinced that we don't see more and rejoice more. I'm convinced we don't see more in ways that God shows up in wondrous ways and that we don't rejoice more as his people because we speak like we're children of the king, but we live like he doesn't exist. I call myself his child, and yet I live day to day like he's not even there. We live a life with training wheels on our bike, with leaving guardrails up on our bed because we aren't sure we can handle the bike or we might fall off the bed in the middle of the night and that our heavenly dad won't be there to catch us and take care of us. But we see here and we have seen throughout history that that's exactly what he does. If it takes a miracle, he will do it. If it takes just ordering of natural events in a provincial way, he will do it, but he will do it regardless. And in doing so, in living that way, we miss out on so much adventure. We miss out on so much joy. Because the last thing that Esther does, she makes a move, she gets to see God move, but then she gets to share in the joy of victory. She is delivered. Her cousin Mordecai is delivered. Her people are delivered. Then she and her cousin rise in the standing in the country. And then she leaves a godly heritage of of obedience and willing sacrifice to her children and their children's children after that. After the king says, after the king orders Mordecai's execution, Esther comes, she, she's learning how to leverage her position and her ability. She makes multiple requests to him after that. She says, hey, here's Mordecai. He, he's an important man to me. I'm a Jew. He's my cousin. She tells the king that. The king raises Mordecai to second control. She places Mordecai over control of Haman's household. Then she goes to the king and says, hey, I know that we've been saved, but uh, what are my people gonna do? This, you can't revoke your law because that's in the way the Persian law works. You can't just revoke a law. What are we gonna do? King, please help us pass a law. The king says, all right, pass whatever law you need to to make sure that the Jews are safe. And so Mordecai passed a law like Haman did, uses the king's signet ring and says, hey, the Jews, yes, you guys can kill the Jews if you want to, but the Jews get to protect themselves. And such an awe falls over the kingdom that it says that even uh, uh, verse, uh, verse 17, I think it is, of chapter 8, and, and many of, from the peoples of the country declared themselves to be Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And because of that, they institute, she and Mordecai, they, they institute a new feast called Purim which they instruct the Jews to celebrate every year in, perpetu- in perpetuity, forever. And you know what it is? It's a party 
where people make food and share food back and forth and they give gifts to those who are poor over two days. A a perpetual party is declared in honor of the deliverance that God wrought by the willingness of Esther to see where she was called and join God in his work there. And they remembered Esther and Mordecai year after year after year, even now, if, you have a, if you're a Jew or come from that background or no Jews, like they still gather together. It looks a little bit different than it did back then, but they still gather together and they have food and they tell a story of how Mordecai and Esther stepped up to save the lives of the Jews. She left a godly heritage of obedience and willing sacrifice to her children and their children's children. Have you ever noticed how the most joyful feasts always follow a victory? Like, I love Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. I love Christmas. But the most joyful feasts are the ones that follow a victory. I wasn't a part of many winning athletic teams growing up for obvious reasons, but the couple of times that I was and they would take you out for pizza afterwards, that was great. A feast that comes after a victory is the best kind of feast. It's the most joyful because people risked and laid it out there and saw victory and are rejoicing together. So here's the question. What will you and I do? What will you and I do? In each of our lives, in each of your lives, in your life, you have been providentially placed exactly where you are. It doesn't mean that's where you'll be forever, but right now at this exact moment, you've been providentially placed right where you are. Your story, your setting, your abilities, your gifts, your motivations, your vocation, your family, your neighborhood, your house, your car, for better or for worse, you've been placed exactly there by the providential hand of God. And just as Esther and Mordecai were called to serve exactly where they are, to join in God's redemptive plan and for the common good, he's called you and I to join him there. The question is, will we leverage all that we are and all that we have for the sake of God's glory? Will we accept our calling right where we are? Will we take the risk to put ourselves on the line? Will we do that? And if we do, or we want to, the question then becomes, where will we find the strength? Where will we find the courage? And here's how you and I can do it. Here's how generations of believers who have gone before us, who have shown humble boldness for the sake of God's glory and his people. Here's how they have stepped up in countless ways, both big and small. Here's how. Because just as the Jews had Esther as their advocate, whenever their lives were on the line and they had no power to deliver themselves, you and I have an advocate before the king when we have no ability to deliver ourselves. And we know that he stepped up for us because we know of what happened on the cross and we know of what happened with the empty tomb three days later. 
And that truth gives us the strength and the motivation and the ability to step up and lay our lives on the line for his glory and for the common good. We have Jesus, the true and better Esther, as our advocate. And not only that, this Jesus who never hesitated, who never backed down, who willingly entered his role, who not only risked his life but gave his life, not only, not only that, about that, but because in this story, you and I aren't really Esther, though we can learn from her. We aren't really uh, Mordecai. You and I are Haman. We're the ones who are wicked and cruel and spiteful and jealous. And he stepped up for us. But not only that, but just as Esther had Mordecai, to advise her and to direct her and to give her wise direction. We, if you are a believer in Christ, you had the Holy Spirit of God who indwells you and gives you the power and the strength and the courage. All of it is there that you need to empower you, to direct you. He is our counselor. He is our advisor. And not only that, but the same power how am I going to empower, how am I going to know that something's going to happen if I step out? How do I know if God's going to show up? Because here's the truth. If you're a believer, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that gave him the courage to face the cross and then rose him from the dead is within you and is empowering you to take you to victory. And we know that he's taking us to victory. Because at the end of it all, we're given a preview of what happens at the end of our story. And there's a great feast and a great victory when we all gather around in his presence. And it will be a feast to end all feasts because it will be a victory to end all victories. A victory and a kingdom that will never, ever be shaken and if you're a believer, that's what you get to be a part of now. And if you're not a believer, I pray you would join this morning. Let's pray. Father, I know that I need the message of Esther more than anyone else in this room. I am far too prone to forget, to not look around, to be so absorbed in my if I'm on, that I don't even see where you are at work around me. And then if I'm honest, oftentimes when I do see where you are at work around me, you're calling to me to join in your redemptive plan or to join for the common good. God, I'm just too selfish. I don't want to join in. I don't want to be a part. And Father, I pray you would change my heart, you would change all of our hearts here this morning that find ourselves in that place. And you would help us find the motivation and the encouragement to your mission. And Jesus, our advocate, and the power to achieve that mission and the courage to, by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us, 
Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.